Welcome to Tech Junior. Hey everybody, welcome back. We are talking to Greg Pollock today. So Greg is the creator of ViewMastery.com, as well as the founder of a bunch of startups in Orlando, like uh, Envy Labs, uh, Code School, and Starter Studio, to name a few. So we talked to him about uh, creating startups as a developer, and also a little bit of you. So it was an awesome show, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you want to support us, please go to our site at techjar.dev and click subscribe, sign up for our mailing list, and get updates and some other goodies, and tweet us at TechJR Podcast. Uh, leave a review on iTunes and all that other fun stuff. Anything that you can do is appreciated. All right, that's all I've got. On to the show. Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Work Junior. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. I have with me as always Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie, uh, front end guy. And today we have a <laughs> Eddie's uh, intro is different every day. But uh, today we have a special guest. We've got uh, Greg Pollock. Hey, uh, it's Greg. I, I, I'm a software teacher guy. <laughs> that was my best impression. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Greg, if you could uh, introduce yourself and kind of let everybody know. Uh, what it is you do and yeah sure um so i'm a you know developer by trade ended up uh, doing a lot of programming in my career but ended up going back and forth between um trying to start up my own tech startup failing at it and then going and working for somebody else and going back and forth through my career had some good fail had some failure and had some success and i you know found my passion in teaching programming online created some successful businesses out of that yeah, so we're uh, we're really excited to talk to Greg today because Eddie and I work in Orlando, and uh, Greg has kind of launched his uh, his startup founding career and multiple <laughs> startups in Orlando. Uh, it's kind of a wild ride from what I've read, so uh, we'll let Greg explain it. But um, the the whole thought was, you know, developers are not really good traditionally at kind of looking at things from the business side. And mm -hmm. so it sounds like you, Greg, have kind of stumbled through that and learned a lot of lessons. So we're, we're really excited to, uh, to dig into that. But uh, first of all, how did you end up over here in Orlando in the first place? Um, well, the short answer is I have the bad habit of letting the women I meet move me about the country. Um, <laughs> I never really, never really cared as much as I should have of like living in certain places. And um, yeah, so I met a girl out of college who moved me to San Diego and then met another girl there who moved me to Orlando. And, you know, once I got here, I was going to work remotely for a defense contractor out of San Diego, but, uh, that fell through. It was, it was, it was rough. Like I got married for the first time. I, uh, went on the honeymoon, came back, bought a house and I was like, Hey, I'm ready to work. And they said, you know, we, we really need someone in Washington, DC. It's like, Oh, <laughs> you're telling me I don't have a job anymore. Great. And so, um, I, but I use that as another opportunity to, uh, you know, create an idea for a failing startup. <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, so that's how I ended up in Orlando. Um, her family was here, had kids here. My family grew, my parents grew up in Miami beach. So, um, okay. they're over there. Not that I grew up in Miami beach, but that's where my parents yeah. are. So we're closer to family and, uh, yeah. And so now I love Orlando. I'm kind of required to love Orlando for at least the next, <laughs> wait, how old is my daughter? For at least the next eight years, I will love Orlando. 
Cool. So uh, before you came over here, you're working for uh, MP3.com, right? Yeah, yeah. That was like uh, that was where I got my like data warehousing and like uh, Perl and command line chops, dude. I like figured out, I learned how to pipe all these, you know, ugly command lines. I learned about grep and sed and awk and how to pipe them all together to do data formatting. Oh my God, those were the days. Wow. Um, and there's this yeah. great story I have online here. You can link it where I tell, talk about how while I was there, um, I managed, it was, you know, you know how you all have that like biggest like screw up of your career? Does it matter? Yeah. Can I can I swear or do you want not want me to swear? We are uh, marked as not explicit, so if you okay, get, I will not swear. Hold then. hold it back as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I totally get that. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, I managed to delete over a weekend one Perl script where it was like a it was a SQL statement where I had select star from whatever like emails, and and then instead of where. <laughs> I put an and. <laughs> Ooh. And so basically you write a SQL statement where it's like update. No, it wasn't a select. It was update, blah, 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 set email instead of where. It was and this and this without any where statement, which will successfully update, in my case, 150 million email records. Wow. And I blew away the entire email database. And then uh, the database guy spent all day restoring it. And the next day I was like, what the f- my what the heck my script doesn't ran my script didn't doesn't ran and uh so i ran the script again of course and then the database guys had to come back in the next day and well done oh my gosh that, that, that was a big screw up i have a video that kind of tells that story um yeah wow. I, I watched that that was uh that was good cool yeah you should link that that's a good some good lessons in that um but yeah yeah mp3.com was great and went from there to yeah to orlando so um before you came to Orlando, uh, working for mb3.com, did you kind of have in your mind, like, well, one day I want to start my own business or, you know, um, I, w- I kind of want to do my own thing or like I said, I think right out of, uh, college, um, I had an idea, you know, first I had, I tried to build an online tournament gaming league where people could create their own leagues. It was kind of a SAS in that model. And that failed. I did that right out of college. And, um, after, after working at 3DO, a gaming company, because I thought I wanted to be a gamer, uh, a game programmer. And, um, and that failed. And then I went back working for the man. And I had another idea for a startup. And that <laughs> failed. And went back and forth doing it pretty much out of college. And, um, you know, basically, I learned the same lesson over and over again, which is um, I could build products, but I was crap when I came to, like, sales and marketing. I could just, like... Never did enough customer validation, never found enough customers, didn't know how to market it successfully. Man, I had so much to learn. But of course, you know, and I made that mistake over and over again of just, you know, maybe I'll I'll build an amazing product and I'll go and I'll build it and then the customers will come, right? And I'll just, yeah, no, um, didn't know how to do sales and marketing. Yeah, I hear that uh, repeatedly whenever looking up like uh, tales of startups and business and stuff online from developers. Mm -hmm. It always seems to be like, Oh man, guys, I have this great idea for a SaaS app. Let's spend, you know, 30 months building it and then mm-hmm. launch it and then we'll be set for life and we'll have passive income and all this wonderful stuff. And they get like halfway into it or the goalpost shifts mm-hmm. or something happens and it just kind of flops and then they get discouraged. They go back working for the man, like you said. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the bottom line is no one does enough customer validation. 
And so what, what is that? That's when you, before you build a product, right before you're about to build a product, you have the idea, you go and you find customers that um, you hope have the problem that you're trying to solve. And you talk to them and you say, hey, you know, what's some of the biggest problems in your business? You know, you don't lead them. You don't say, um, hey, I've got this product. Would you buy it? No, 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 no. You go to them and you say, what are some of the biggest problems you're running into um, in your business? And you pray that one of the first second or third things they say is the problem that you're trying to solve. And if they don't say it's the first, second or third problem that you're trying to solve, well, you might not have a good idea. And so you might want to revise what you're doing. Um, and so you go out and you find the customers that are going to be your first customers and um, make sure they have the problem and see if they would purchase your software and work with them. And, you know, this is sort of like you're, you're selling before you're actually, you know, you have the product. And so that sort of customer validation comes like there's lots of books on that. One of them is the Lean Startup book, um, which is a really good starting place if you're want to if you're software dev thinking I want to build a product. Cool. So uh, before we get like kind of way in deep with uh, advice for startups and that kind of thing, um, what was the first thing that you kind of started up here in Orlando when you got here? Um, well, yeah, um, I, I was out of a job and I was, uh, mp3.com had a really great project management tool while I was there. And I thought, Ooh, you know, I can, I can totally code this up in uh, Java. I'm totally going to do this. Um, so I spent some time doing that, trying to recreate that project management tool. I created it and it worked great. You know, functionally it was spectacular. Um, but of course I didn't have enough customers. Um, so that kind of failed. Um, but it was around that same time I went to this No Fluff, Just Stuff conference. It was a Java conference. And there I saw Dave Thomas talking about this hot new language named Ruby and this technology called Ruby on Rails that hadn't yet reached 1.0, but it made it super dang simple to create web applications. And that first book, Agile Web Development with Rails, not only showed you how to code up Rails, but it gave you a recipe for doing consulting work. It's still a great book for that. It gives you a recipe for creating web applications with clients. Um, it's really brilliant in that respect. And so I followed that recipe and that showed, and then I started doing consulting work, just, you know, being an independent consultant. And in any given city in, a, in any day, there are tons of these little small business networking groups and anybody can go to them and you just start networking you start meeting people and you tell them what you do and you know hey i'm looking for companies that need custom web applications i'd like to start that's where i started and eventually you know i found my first gig building a member system for a, an association of some sort getting paid 25 bucks an hour to build software from scratch that was killer um and then sort of just went from there and um put up a website that said I built, you know, Ruby on Rails applications. And given how new Ruby on Rails was, you know, I took the time to get my, you know, list myself as a company that did Ruby on Rails and like the Rails wiki. And that led to some really good customers that would just show up at my door because there weren't many consultancies at the time, you know, advertising that I did Rails development. And so customers would show up, customers would show up saying, you know, I, you know, I, I have this friend, Tim, who said I need to use rails and he recommended, you know, I find this rails consultancy and you guys do rails. And then I would find customers that way. And then just started, you know, um, around then I found my passion for blogging, which came in the form of a blog called rails envy, 
Um, <laughs> and I started you know, blogging through there. And then I also really liked podcasting and created the first, you know, Ruby news podcast, um, which got me more notoriety and then started, you know, when I, and man, I, I loved blogging and I loved, and then at that point I was like, Hey, I, maybe I can speak at conferences. Yeah, this would be cool. I'm going to go speak at a lot of conferences. And then you learn the lesson that some conferences are worth your time and some of them are not. Um, <laughs> but either way you meet people and that leads to more connections, which leads to more consulting work. So really I started having some success in Orlando with the consultancy, which was called rails envy started out. Well, it started out something else, but then it was rails envy. And then after rails envy, I had to, uh, I learned the hard lesson that, um, when you bring people on board, don't feel like you need to make them partners. Cause I mean, I started this blog with this guy, Jason, and he didn't ask to be a partner, but I made him a partner anyways, which was really shooting myself in the foot. You, as a startup, you can do equity really badly. There's lots of ways to really screw it up. Um, and if you're looking for, how to do it properly. I have a blog post on that at gregpollock.com. There's, I did put together a video that basically covers, um, this book called slicing the pie and it shows you how to do equity, right? I wish I would have read this book correctly because, because I didn't do equity, right? I had to close down the business, like shut the whole thing down, shut the blog down that I'd worked really hard building a brand on and then rebrand as envy labs. Um, so I had to rebrand as Envy Labs because I started up a whole new company, um, which, you know, there's another lesson to be learned there, which is don't put the name of a technology in the name of your company. <laughs> Wait, have, um, have you actually learned that lesson? Because you're like heading view mastery, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's on purpose because all we're teaching is you. So it makes sense. Um, if we were to teach another technology, we'd create a new brand. Um, so that works, but, um, yeah, but Rails Envy, we realized like, we shouldn't have been Rails Envy because we're using lots of other technologies and we're sort of pigeonholing ourselves. Cool. So, um, that was a lot. Man, th yeah, there was a lot there. <laughs> so, uh, was there not like a lot of um, opportunities for a developer at the time in Orlando and you kind of just like had to do consulting or that was kind of something that you wanted to do? No, I, that was something I always wanted to do. Um, I have a big problem with authority figures. That's part of it, too. Um, like, I was always so afraid of bosses, man. Bosses were the worst. And, uh, um, you know, I always have to, you know, he's paranoid looking over my shoulder. I would, like, I think I realized really quickly that when I was working for other people, I could work maybe a third as hard as everyone else I could work like a third of the time, it seemed like, and I could get by and I could, you know, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. I got by. And I think that's just because I was never inspired when I worked with the people. I didn't have a good boss that like motivated. I didn't have the right kind of incentives to motivate me to do amazing work. Um, I didn't have a good mentor. Um, and I think, you know, and so when I started, you know, when I worked for myself, like, oh, then I was like really motivated. I found that, you know, yeah, I really liked getting my hands dirty. And when I, all of a sudden, when I started building stuff with my own hands and getting to see and participate in my own success, it felt, it felt amazing. It felt empowering. And, um, and I really liked that. And I didn't like having a boss. And I think that's what really motivated me as part of what motivated me to really try to figure out how to create companies who you know, and to do my own thing. Cause 
because <laughs> I have daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think you described probably a feeling that a lot of developers have, which is kind of like, man, I don't want to have to go work, you know, for somebody else. I'd rather do my own thing, but maybe they don't feel like they can, or they don't know how. So, um, it's there's a lot of crappy bosses out there. Well, that too. And I mean, developers are just as guilty as anybody else's getting into a management position and then not having any management experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And then, you know, if they don't have mentors, so it's kind of like a cycle. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. so Envy, Envy Labs was, um, it was a agency or consultancy kind of shop. Yeah, and it still is. I mean, it still exists to this day. There's a bunch of guys who love doing consulting work who are still, you know, running it. There's maybe 10 to 12 people that work there. So did you, uh, <laughs> did you kind of feel like you became the man and you had to move on or what happened? <laughs> The man. <laughs> what happens when you become the man? <laughs> How can I be? What, what does that even mean? Oh, because you're, so you're referencing the, the company thing. Um, now, um, so it was exciting. So, so really the path that I took is um, I got really good at, at uh, uh, sales. Not that I don't like that. I don't like that I got good. You know, it was not a happy day the day I realized I was good at sales. Um, because you end up, that's what you end up doing. You kind of end up getting pinched and hold doing that stuff because you left time to do what you really enjoy, which is solving complex problems. But um, how I found, you know, success in consultant consulting work was really it was a couple different things. The first was every um, is that we ha- I had a big um, brand, and I developed that brand, and not even I like. I didn't even like, it, not on purpose. I mean, re- I really enjoyed creating educational content for the sake of creating educational content. Started out with blog posts. I go speak at conferences. I'd come home and I film myself doing the conference video. I'd put that video up, um, you know, the, 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 the podcast, doing the news podcast. We'd advertise about our consulting work. And so as Ruby and Rails grew, we had a brand that was really established in the community. We're really well known. That led to even more consulting work coming in. I would, you know, um, I started the local Ruby users group. There wasn't a Ruby users group, but I was a part of the community here. Going to the, I went to the Java users group, the .NET users group, the Cold Fusion users group. Um, I would go to all these groups to really connect with the different developers here. And then I, starting the Ruby users group, what that did is really got me access to all of these developers who were really at the top of their game um, and really wanted to be working on Ruby and Rails. And so I put out educational content that would lead to more um, leads coming my way. And they were really warm leads because of our reputation, which was brilliant. Um, Because, you know, it'd be like, you know, I get these leads, I'd be like, uh, hey, Greg, my friend Tim said I should talk to your consultancy about this web app I want to build. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, yeah, yeah, Tim. Yeah, okay. Because, like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know who they were talking about, but they just, you know, these are people who maybe listened to the podcast. They knew we knew our stuff, so they'd recommend Tim, you know, it's like, so it's like recommend friends doing it. And so they showed up super warm um, because of that, because the people who'd show up were recommended by developers. Or it was developers who wanted us to bring bring um, additional help into their companies because um, needed more consulting. They wanted consulting work to like build something really good, and we sort of became the experts at Ruby on Rails. Um, 
So, you know, the, the, uh, the educational content, which I loved producing, um, became really what fed the consulting work and the company grew from there. Um, the other thing that led to the success was really, uh, um, I cared a great deal and I didn't, I didn't realize how passionate I was about this, um, until the last two, three years. I have a real passion for organizational psychology, which is really the psychology of the workplace, which is a short way of saying, you know, I really cared a lot about creating the optimal workplace for developers because, you know, I had friends and I had experienced firsthand what it's like to work in crappy workplaces with not great bosses where you feel disconnected where you feel unappreciated and so it was really important to me as soon as I you know hired people because you know I knew as soon as consulting work would come in I'm like who do I know oh yeah who do I know from the Ruby users group I knew all the most talented Ruby developers in town and so I go to them and I say hey um, I'm trying to build like a really optimal consultancy where we can have fun and be appreciated and get paid for all the work that you do um not pay you some salary and require you to work overtime. Like I want to pay you for every hour that you work and, you know, come in here and we'll create this culture together. And I have, you know, guaranteed at least three to four months worth of work. And I think I can get more it's still a startup. It's a little risky. It's a little more risky than probably what you're doing. But, you know, if you want to be a part of this, you know, let, you know, I'd love to have you on board and then people would join. And so we ended up with this consultancy with easily the smartest, um, Ruby and rails developers, probably probably in central florida I and mean, we had people who kind of you know eventually people who moved here from all over the state um just because we had this brain trust and people saw us you know developers were like wow i want to work with some of these smartest guys because they know their stuff um and part of that is because i started the ruby users group i knew who all the smartest guys were in town and ended up bringing them together and like like you know like i said it's culture is so important to me and really that, um, you know, uh, you know, working on core values and eventually, you know, and doing one-on-ones, I could talk about culture forever, but I won't. Um, and so all of that led to a successful consultancy that eventually got up to, I think at our height, we had maybe 26 people working just on the consultancy. And that was, you know, that was maybe how many years ago, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago. Wow. Probably eight years so, ago, yeah. So the first joke I want to make is when you talk <laughs> about uh, psychology and great workplaces is uh, so that means open offices, ping pong tables, and uh, lots of uh, ice cream socials and that sort of thing, right? Something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely despise all that. Um, Why is that? Open, I have an open tables? office at, at work, and it's oh. like. We've got one of those big beanbag chairs, and so one of the designers just like walks by and flops his body on it, and mm-hmm. it creates like this big boom that even with headset on, it kind of like shocked me while I was trying to get some work done. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that is like super aggravating. So like so, distractions. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots yeah. of distractions. There's lots of stuff that you have to do. Um, like we realized um, as we moved into the big open spaces, like uh, for example, when someone joined the company, they get to choose their you know, what kind of noise canceling earphones do we want? Do you want us to buy? And we buy everybody, you know, $200 headphones that are noise canceling. You have to do that. And then you have to always remind people about flow, right? So we talk, anybody who joined the company, we would talk about the importance of 
um, not interrupting people and how, um, you know, different modes of communication. So when you need help, you know, you think to yourself, okay, how important is this really? I could turn to this person on the right, but then I'm in my interrupting their flow. Um, can I send them, you know, do I send them a chat that might interrupt them too? How important is this? I could send them an email. Yeah, maybe I'll send them an email because I don't need an answer till later this afternoon. And that way I'm not distracting them. So you have to talk about that too. Um, and certainly in certain workplaces with certain personalities, um, like for example, it's definitely hard to have an open office space with, if you have a big sales team, you really need a separate space for people who are going to be on the phone. People should not be allowed to be on the phone in open workspaces if that's what they're going to do. Um, so, you know, our sales guy, you know, he kind of at times would like take over a meeting room. And now we were like, we're, everybody's fine with that because we can't have them talking. And, you know, yet you also have to you also have to enforce library rules and of course, remind people of those or have door have things on the door that are like you're entering a space with library rules, which means keep your voices down. And you have to talk to your people about, you know, having the courage when it starts to get loud, when people are laughing loudly to, you know. Go over, hey, guys, keep it down, keep it down, right? So people aren't afraid to say something. So if you kind of do all of that, then I feel like you, you can be successful about with open office spaces. There's lots of things you can do to make sure it's, um, it works. And yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say Planet Money had a, a really good uh, podcast on working from home and open offices and kind of like, is one better than the other? And kind of the takeaway from it was, different people want different things from their workspace. So some mm -hmm. people really thrive at home and some people really thrive in an open office where they can turn to somebody and get help. Yeah. And there's one other thing that I think was really key that I'm probably neglecting. Um, and that was, um, we always had a tradition of we come to the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but Tuesday, Thursdays, it was always optional. Some people love coming into the office and some people love working from home. And some people are like, yeah, man, I got my Tuesday, Thursdays. I love coming in Monday, figuring out what I'm working. I go home on Tuesday and I just like get tons of stuff done. And so I think that's a part of it too. Um, I've always enjoyed having those days of working at home on Tuesdays and Thursdays um, or even alternative workspaces. And I think that's, like, I don't think, and like, I would always say, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody really wants to work in an office five days a week. I mean, it, it's a bit much. Yeah. So having those, um, Tuesdays and Thursdays was key, especially because like life happens and you always have stuff, especially you always have stuff that like home projects, you got the plumber coming over, you need to go to the doctors, you need to do this, you do that. And having those Tuesday, Thursdays and like encouraging people, like those are, those are the days that you schedule that stuff. Um, made work even more convenient for everybody. It really worked out. Um, I think that, that that kind of pattern works really well. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you kind of had a lot of stuff figured out and a lot of um, good practices in place to keep people happy. Mm -hmm. So what, what's really weird about this is putting myself in your shoes, you have like this great startup that really took off, a good consultancy. Yes, you're leading the ship and kind of doing the sales, but um, what would kind of like what would be so attractive that would pull you away from that? Um, what made you want to kind of leave that and go do a different startup or start teaching again? Well, I was teaching the whole time. I never stopped teaching. So that's the thing, like starting with the consult, like, you know, 12 years ago, 12, 13, 
dang, I'm old. Um, years ago, <laughs> I, you know, realized I enjoyed teaching stuff. And even when I was doing the consulting, um, you know, I stopped coding, which was really hard. Like I got to that point and I'm just like, oh, I wish I could get back and code because what I would do is I'd balance my time between, um, doing, uh, some project management. I would do a lot of customer discovery. I would do the sales. And then when I wasn't working on that, I was working on, you know, blogging and podcasting and, excuse me, teaching at conferences and creating videos. And the video, the educational videos would just be more lead gen, you know, and I really enjoyed producing them. And um, it was more for me, it was like, <laughs> I enjoyed producing them for the sake of producing them and helping people, but it had a side effect that it led to more consulting work. Um, so I was really driven to do it. it. Didn't feel like work to me. It felt like um, uh, it felt really gratifying. Um, and you know, out of that became you know, added, and code school was just the ev- natural evolution. It was really just the evolution of going. You know, we created something called Rails for Zombies, which was just another free resource for the community. It was a bunch of free, uh, you know, videos and interactive stuff for the community. But we created that, and it, the the reception of that just was so amazing that um, we were like, oh my gosh, we need to maybe do more of this and this time charge for it. And so that's really what Code School evolved from was simply the educational content I really enjoyed producing anyways and was producing anyways. And we said, you know, let's maybe create a product out of this. Cool. So uh, you kind of went full steam ahead with Code School and that went really well. Kind of, because, you know, it was, we, we, ne- we were lucky enough that we never had to take any, you know, investment and that's because we bootstrapped it out of the consulting work and it was a really natural progression because every three, f- you know, every like four or f- five months, I would take time away to do educational stuff. So it just felt it was a natural progression of just doing more of that and the consulting work kept on going, right? So we had people still doing the consulting work. And I was still working on that a little bit, but certainly after about a year into code school, it, it sort of took off on its own. And thankfully the guys who were working at Envy Labs were like, okay, maybe we should let Greg work full-time on code school. This is looking pretty awesome. And so I had team members who kind of, um, you know, took the lead on the consulting side of the company, which was still really healthy. Um, so I could work full-time on code school. And at the time we thought that, you know, um, Envy Labs was a product, you know, it was a consulting shop, but then also creates products. And so we were like, you know, Code School is going to be the first maybe of many products. <laughs> was, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, to be fair, we had other products that never really went anywhere. <laughs> but uh, Code School was the was the hit. Cool. And then I started working on that and it got to the point where we had like towards the, you know, part where we have when we were required it was like 40 people working at code school and maybe like 15 at envy labs so then um, how did uh like where did starter studio fit into all this and also view mastery like how did that come about yeah wow well, it's funny how they all kind of blend together there's so much more to the story now i have to get better at telling the short version um <laughs> so um starter studio happened when um, code school was still, was still growing. We maybe had, um, maybe six, seven people working on it. Um, including me. 
and we were in an office space where we could we had like co-working space where we could have co-working space and we did have people that rented desks and we we're like how do we how do we make this like an even more successful part of our business because again i like creating spaces for people and we had some really cool people hanging around um and but there were already co-working spaces in orlando so we we're like well why should we create another co-working space maybe we could do something better and that's when we started to catch wind of all of these technical accelerators that were popping up around florida there's tampa bay wave center there's venture hive in miami and you know there was all you know uh all the other ones like Techstars started popping up on y combinator and we were, i was like maybe maybe we should try to create one of these accelerators and I found some other people in the community that could support me in that initiative. And we just got together every week and started to figure out what that would mean. We talked to a bunch of people. And what we ended up creating is a three-month technical accelerator that combined education with mentorship to help startups get further faster. And every time we ran it, I, you know, I was like, maybe this time we'll give people funding. Maybe this time we'll keep people funding. And we never ended up giving anyone funding because we really satisfied a need. So it became like a nonprofit where, you know, developers and people who otherwise that have good ideas and they have a team and they want to execute it, but they're not, they don't yet have a profitable business, um, but they have the ability to execute, um, you know, apply to get into our three-month accelerator. We give them all these resources and, and free desk space. That's a big part of it because, you know, really half the value uh, there's so much value in getting yourself working around other people who are doing the same thing, like getting yourself in a workspace where you're working around, you know, 10 other tech startups that are going to have the same problems that you have as they do customer validation, as they pivot, as they need resources. All these companies help each other. Um, don't undervalue that. Like it's so valuable. Like, gosh, half the value you get from one of these accelerators is simply your network because what naturally happens is you know some of the startups most of the startups fail eventually but what ends up happening is if one of them succeeds everybody all the other founders jump over and start working for this guy who is really succeeding and it's very symbiotic and you know somebody's a really good developer but they're not a good designer but there's a designer who works that the designer helps so they all end up helping each other and bonding together and um and even if this startup doesn't work, they learned so much through a technical accelerator. And so that's, you know, that's a big piece of advice that I have for um, developers who, you know, want to break into doing product is um, see if you can get yourself to some sort of technical accelerator. There's tons. Whatever city you're in, Google, you know, like Orlando Technical Accelerator, and you'll find a bunch and see if you can, you know, um, See if you can dedicate yourself, you know, give yourself three months to go to a technical accelerator, work on your product full time. You learn so much. Even if you don't succeed, you're going to still learn a ton of skills that are going to help you succeed in your career no matter what you do next. Even if it fails, it'll help you in the next startup. Even if it fails and you go working for somebody else. Um, you might find a dream job with another person who you network with. It might be another startup. It might even a comp be another company that a mentor that you meet has built. You know, there's so many things you can do um, that launch you, the connections that you make. Um, so that was Starter Studio. And Starter Studio is still going to this day. Um, I don't, I, don't I, I do some mentorship down there. I run... Um, like self-awareness, communication, leadership workshops with the teams that go down there because that's what I've partially dedicated about 
about a, about a quarter of my time right now is dedicated right now to learning how to teach self-awareness, communication, you know, being more authentic, you know, living in more peace and joy and communicating more effectively. That I can also talk about over and over again. To, to, I'm doing some amazing work in there. Um, and then, um, so I still work with Starter Studio, but then uh, View Mastery was the other thing that you asked about. So, you know, the codes, codes, so Code School got acquired by Pluralsight. Um, it was a wonderful match. Um, Pluralsight's an amazing company. They had, came with, uh, you know, a hundred person sales team, which we did not want to build. We never like, oh, like that was just, we would have had to, if we wanted to keep on scaling the business. And, um, yeah, so it was very complimentary. And then, so I worked at Pluralsight for like about a year and a half and then did it, you know, I gave my six months notice cause that's what you do when you're kind of, uh, running a company and you want to leave it in better hands. So that was, that was an amazing process. Two weeks isn't good. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, no. if you're the founder or CEO or something. Yeah. No, if you, if hey, you, if you, you know. want to outlast, that's what you do. If you are building a startup and you feel like, Oh damn, I'm really key to this and I want to step away. There's people you can work with, find an organizational psychologist that you can work with, figure out a six month process where you identify what you're doing, how to identify somebody who does what you do. This whole very systematic process you can take so that the company can function very successfully without you. Um, so I kind of went through that process and then I stepped away and I took a real summer break. Like I was like, I'm going to give myself three months at least to just step away and not work. So I spent a really high quality summer with my family. And then I, after that, I sort of came back and really got inspired because I was always wondering, like throughout the whole thing of doing code school, code school is really good at um, teaching the beginning part of every subject. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be the place that you started learning new technology. And I was always curious what it would be like if we were able to pick one technology and go really deep on that one technology. Because one of the problems we ran into at Code School is we had a really low um, customer lifetime value, which just means like people would come learn just what they want to learn and then unsubscribe. They would stick around for like, gosh, a lot of people just stuck around for like a month and a half. It was pretty poor. Um, luckily we had, you know, amazing, um, what do you call it? Not lead gen, but funnel. We had an amazing funnel of people finding us and amazing links everywhere that drove people to our website, um, that made up for it. Um, and, um, yeah, where was I going with that? Um, we're, we're all a little punch drunk because we're recording kind of late. Really late. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you mastery. So I really wanted to focus, really, I was excited about finding and selecting a technology that was in the early adoption phase. It hadn't yet made it to mainstream. And going into that and really creating really high quality educational content for them. And doing it in a way with a big give back, which really inspires me. And that is, you know, we, we decided to give 25% of all the revenue we make back to support that open source project. And that sort of big give back, you know, that's revenue, not profit. <laughs> Most startups would make it about profit. This is revenue. Wow. Yeah, you can't do that unless you start the business that way. It would have been impossible otherwise. And so... Um, 
to this day that now we are the biggest supporter of view mastery. So we're doing, um, we give a little over $10,000 a month to view, which Holy is, smokes. Am- yeah, it's amazing. Wow. We've given over, we've given probably at least, at least about $120,000 to the view project. And that really motivates me. I love that we have that huge give back. And also I know our customers like that. It motivates some customers subscribe to us because 25% of every dollar they give us goes back to support the project. And it's nice to kind of be the underdog. You know, you've got Angular supported by Google and you've got React supported by Facebook and you've got Vue.js that is supported by the community, by just the community, not any big companies. So Yeah, so do you pick up your phone and you're just like, hey, Evan, uh, how do I do this? Or <laughs> do you have a direct line? Is there like the hotline next to you? Or You know, I haven't taken advantage of that at all until <laughs> very recently. Um, and that's simply because now I'm trying to teach Vue 3 stuff. And okay. um, and now I've got some content and I'm trying, and I've gotten him to help me proof the content. And he's, he's like the best person for it because he's right now like, He's the only guy right now who is coding it. <laughs> like he's mm-hmm. like, he's a genius. Like, um, it's so interesting how um, like the smartest um, like framework creators have a design background. Isn't that interesting? Like David Heinemeyer Hansen, he has a design background. He's a designer who became a coder. Same deal with Evan. He's a designer who became a coder, and because of that, he thinks a lot about accessibility and creating stuff that is accessible to everybody and is very user-friendly for beginners and has good design um, in the code. Um, and uh, yeah, he's a genius, which, which you know also means that he's going to write documentation that is very thorough, <laughs> but is going to be very overwhelming for beginning to intermediate, intermediate developers. So I've been kind of working with him to create some video content that really explains some of the amazing new features of Vue 3 in a way that anyone can understand that I'm really excited about getting there out, getting out on the internet because it's going to explain some, some advanced concepts and blow some people's minds. Cool. So uh, I want to dig into that a little bit, but before we get there, um, you had this whole business uh, history of Ruby on Rails um, development what made you pivot and go into JavaScript uh, and like front end specifically? Well, honestly, um, when we were trying to pick what technology to teach with this company, we evalu- we, we, we evaluated a lot of different um, metrics. Um, we looked, we, we, first of all, we picked a couple different technologies. We we're like, this technology looks interesting. This one looks interesting and found the ones that were in that sweet spot in that early adopter phase. So we measured a bunch of things. We looked at like how many Udemy courses do they have? Um, you know, how popular are they on YouTube? How much traffic are they getting? What is the growth curve when you look at like Google Trends? How else can we look at trends when they're when we look at the, how they're growing? Are they kind of at an inflection point? Um, so we gathered a, a ton of data points, and we found that View was really at a sweet spot. That um, if we start on working on it now, we could um, really establish ourselves as one of the domain experts in the community. Cool. So it was kind of like a business decision. Um, it sounded like maybe even more than a personal thing. Yeah. And 
to be fair, <laughs> we wanted to pick a technology that we were familiar with. And both me and Adam Jar, who teaches with me, were pretty familiar with JavaScript. So it seemed like a, a good, safe fit for the first one. Cool. So uh, the second thing I wanted to ask, digging into Vue 3 and um, all the new features that are coming, is the RFC. So there was like this huge hubbub in the community about mm-hmm. uh, hooks in Vue, and a lot of people came out and said, oh my gosh, I hate this, it's React, um, it's it's terrible, the API is garbage, I'm going to switch to something else. Um, and then there was another revision, and it kind of blew up all over again. So um, how do you feel about Vue hooks, and kind of, like, do you like it, do you hate it? Do you think it's basically too reacty for Vue, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, so basically what we're talking about now is now being referred to as the composition API. And so basically, like all of this um, was created. You got me at the right time. I can talk about this. I think I can explain it really well. So <laughs> um, first of all, the way that this was approached, like all of a, all of the core view team are kind of just like doing a facepalm and they're like, oh, we didn't realize that with the way that we introduced this, everybody got the wrong idea. Everybody um, thought that this new syntax was going to replace the way that we code components in Vue, and that's not it at all. Like the majority of the time, um, you're going to write Vue components in this. You can write Vue three components in the exact same way that you write Vue two components. Like nothing is changing with the standard API. The standard API is um, is perfect. It's it's so user friendly. It's so easy to jump into. It makes so much sense. But really, so so this new composition API is an alternative way to code components. It's a different way to code components that is meant for people who are more advanced, right? For people who are building bigger applications. And sort of the two problems that it aims to solve. First, with the way that you code up view components, um, view components in a big application can start getting really lengthy. And because you know, you've got um, a bunch of different component options. Like you've got your, um, you've got your reactive properties. You've got your methods. You have your um, component. Uh, you've got your um, computer properties. You've got your components. You've got all of these little options. And what ends up happening is, the code for each feature, in or like logical, you can call it feature. You call it logical concern. Um, the code for each feature inside of each component gets spread out and separated. And you're like, ah, this component is huge. And this one feature for this search feature, there's search and there's filter, like all these different features for this one component, all the code for it's getting spread out and all these different options. And it's impossible. You, in a perfect world, you would have it all together. And so this composition API gives you a way to write your components where all of your features are now grouped. So you can read it and say like, okay, all of the methods and the reactive properties and the um, computer properties and all the, you know, they're all grouped together. So it becomes a lot more maintainable and a lot, of, a lot more readable because you're grouping 
your code together in a way that makes a lot more sense when you have complex components. So that's the first problem it solves. The second problem it solves is that all of the ways that you would extract code into reusable components from yeah, from your components, like so you've got some component code and you're like, you know, these two components are using the same code, so it's duplicated. So let's extract this into, you know, a piece of code. And really the most, usually with Vue 2, you would solve this using a mix-in. And so you would extract the code and there was a couple different ways to create reusable code snippets, but they all had drawbacks. They all had things that made them not perfectly clean. And this new composition API gives us a way to write these, you know, reusable code snippets that get reused across components in a way that's extremely modular and extremely reusable and it, um, and it put, and configurable so that you can really do some advanced code patterns. This is like the advanced stuff and code up, um, you know, reusable code snippets that everybody can use in a way that is just cleaner, it's more maintainable, it's easier to test, it's easier for you to see where the, um, what code pieces are getting brought into your component, because that was another issue that you ran into with using mixins, is it really wasn't clear, like, where some of these properties and functions were coming from. Which mixin are they coming from? Is there overlap between different mixins? Like it became really hairy. And this composition API really solves that problem so that you know where the different pieces of codes are, are coming through. And the brilliant part about it is that you're just using JavaScript functions, which means you get all of this IntelliSense and like editor stuff built in. So it's already very user friendly with the editors. And the other brilliant part about it is that if you are a fan of like using TypeScript, it makes it even more friendly for TypeScript users. And that's another big problem that we were running into in the Vue community is that people had, there was a lot of caveats that you ended up having to do a lot of plugins when you wanted to use TypeScript. So this composition API is extremely TypeScript friendly. So if you want to use TypeScript now, it's even easier to use it, even more user-friendly than it ever was before with Vue 3. Cool. So that was a super long answer, and I love it because <laughs> uh, I, I work with Vue uh, at work, and we have a giant application, and it has a ton of giant components. Mm -hmm. And so like Vue is awesome because it has those uh, very familiar players like Think of it maybe like a chessboard or something where the pieces have certain moves that they can do. And mm -hmm. so if you kind of learn the basics, you're kind of up and running and ready to go. But uh, yeah. the composition API kind of pulls the rug out from under that where you've got just like functional stuff. And so now your yeah. components may look differently, whereas before every view component kind of has like watchers and computed and data and all the familiar stuff. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely run across those things that you said like, Oh my gosh, this component's huge. I don't know what it's doing. Oh, it's pulling in a mixin. What does the mixin do? You have to go find that. And then it's like, oh, well, does this computed property run first in the mixin or first in the component? And what's overriding what? And it, it just kind of gets really hard to think about. Yeah. And the cool part about all of this is that you can start using this, the composition API right now in Vue 2. They're really keeping up to date. There's a plugin that you can use that you can easily pull in to any Vue 2 app and just start coding it. 
and they're really doing a job of keeping that up to date if you want to start playing with this stuff. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of React Hooks. Um, I wasn't at first. I kind of was like, oh, what, what is this kind of new thing? Mm-hmm. But uh, moving away from class-based components with React into Hooks was like really great, um, except for the whole, like you drop the idea of the component lifecycle and instead start thinking about side effects. Whereas mm-hmm. with Vue, they've kind of, they've got both. So you can use use effect, it looks like, but also they still have like use created and use mounted and the lifecycle hooks as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when uh when can we see this course on Vue Mastery on, on Vue hooks or yeah. the composition API? Yeah, the composition API. Yeah, that's gonna be coming out um right in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, stay tuned to Vue Mastery. Those will be the first like few lessons of the Vue three course. I'll probably put it out, um, put a lot of this content out for free at least at first while Vue three is still solidifying you know so yeah and i'm presenting this in london in two weeks so oh wow at view london cool uh when is when is view three itself expected to drop yeah yeah good question (laughs) (laughs) if you could pick up that hotline and just ask evan like hey man are you almost done or (laughs) yeah yeah i i suspect i you know i what i think i think evan will at uh, View London, when he's doing a talk there, I think he'll probably say something about his goals for the timeline for it. So I will leave that to him. That's his job to be open about that. <laughs> I've got kind of a general idea, but I, I don't think it's my place to be open about it yet. Let's leave it to Evan. I can assume it's coming soon because you're making courses about it. So it's, it's imminent, right? Yeah, well, you know, there there hasn't been, you know, any alpha or beta yet. So keep that in mind. And, you know, Evan is being going to be very thorough with having a beta process and then some, uh, you know, release candidates. And so, and he hasn't even gotten, we haven't gotten to that point yet. So, you know, that with an open source project, you know, usually takes, usually takes a few months to get through that, to make sure everything is working before you release it, um, release 3.0, right? So we'll definitely see some, you know, some betas and the release candidates in the next couple months. Cool. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see that stuff, especially from uh, View Mastery. Uh, I've done a couple of the courses, including like the the Nuxt one and the basics and oh, awesome. that sort of stuff. Thanks. And uh, I love it. We uh, we use it at work. So really good oh, stuff. Killer. That's great to hear. Well, shortly we'll get Eddie on there and he'll be deep diving view with us. That's <laughs> nice. <point>. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. We'll, we'll make a fan <clears throat> out of him. Um, but yeah, going back to uh, to all of your business experience, like, um, it sounds like you kind of started doing a lot of the stuff that Eddie and I are doing. So we have a podcast, obviously we, uh, we run a meetup. Um, we'd like to get into consulting or freelancing or, or that sort of thing, kind of making our own projects and doing our own thing, teaching all that sort of stuff. Uh, so what kind of advice would you have for maybe like your past self when you were first starting out, um, and just getting into all of these things? Um, yeah, so I think really the first step for anything is to build a mailing list, right? A first step for any product, any technical online product is to see if you can build a mailing list. And you don't need a product 
for building a mailing list. You simply need, uh, you know, a splash page, right? So you start building a splash page that describes the kind of product you want to build, and then you just need a way to drive people to it. That could be by writing blog posts that appeal to your potential customers. That could be, um, you know, writing blog posts on other people's blogs. It could be offering people value. So for View Mastery, for example, before we had one piece of content published, we created a Vue.js cheat sheet, right? Which had which is a two-page cheat sheet that had all the syntax you need put together in a pretty way, right? So I put together a, a crappy-looking one and then sent it to a designer who put together a nice-looking one, and then we put that up on the website, and, you know, just drop us your email, and we'll send you these cheat. We'll send you this cheat sheet, and that was a way that we were able to generate. Um, emails right and so we advertised that on the podcast we got involved with like the official view news podcast um and then oh else we also went to you know evan and chris fritz who are running the view community and said hey we want to create a a video that explains view really well would you be willing to put that on your front page if we created it with you guys they're like yeah and so that video also led people to the cheat sheet so but and we experimented with some paid advertising which had mediocre results I pretty much concluded that like creating effective content is always going to be a better spend than ad, than paid advertising. Um, but um, so it's about generating that email list. So by the time we had launched even free content with ViewMastery, Mastery, we already had like 5,000 people on our mailing list, 5,000 potential customers. So, you know, before you have your product, before you even build it, you can start validating that you're going to be able to attract customers because if you're building anything online that you're going to charge less than, let's say, a thousand bucks a year for, you need an automated lead generating engine that makes you money while you sleep. And so you can validate that you create that. You can create that before you create the product, right? Just by providing a little bit of value. So that's really, you know, what I would encourage, you know, to talk startup founders to figure out you know how to do is start generating emails like figure out how you can get to the point where you're generating let's say like 100 emails a week how can you generate 100 emails a week while you sleep in a way that is going to build off each other um and not not ways that are one-off like everybody can do one-off things like for example I, yeah man i could i can i have all these people who i you know, my friends and family and whatever i'm definitely gonna email them and i'll advertise on facebook and advertise on linkedin by spamming all my friends the only problem with that is that you can kind of only do that one time what you need is the kind of links that generate ongoing emails so you know like i said get to the point where you can do 100 emails a week don't write a single line of code until you can figure out a way that you can generate a hundred emails a week. You're talking about getting a hundred subscriptions or a hundred new email addresses on your list. Yeah. A hundred new email addresses on your list. Yeah. So start building that so that you know, you'll have an audience of continuous subscribers. Cause yeah, I know so, tons of, I know tons of developers who've built a great product, but they were never able to drive enough traffic to make it worth anything. So kind of like a lot of us fall into the trap of fire ready aim versus like ready aim fire or something like that where you have to gauge the interest and see like if this is even a worthy endeavor before sitting down and writing three billion lines of code to make it happen exactly right and you know there's a lot to be said for as well you know really 
doing your customer validation so you can figure out what your minimum viable product is, right? Meaning like what is the very least you can create to, um, that people are willing to pay for. Um, so that's the other, that's the other big, uh, mistake I see a lot of technical people make is they go in there. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be fully. I'm not going to launch this thing until it's fully featured. You know, it's got to have, it's got to have all these features. If I put it out before it has all these features, then like, it's not going to be valuable. And it's like, no, the most valuable products do one thing really well. So figure out what that one thing is, what that one big problem your customer has is and solve that one problem. Um, and you know, do the customer validation. It sounds like finding these people and saying, you know, Oh, what, what are your, what are the biggest problems you have? Okay. That's that one problem. How do you currently try to solve it? It might be with another software product, right? So, okay. So it might be, you know, it might be Microsoft Excel. Um, and, it might, and then you say, okay, how, do, how does that work? What do you like about that? What do you not like about that? Okay. If you had a, if you had, if I, if you, if I found a product for you that, um, didn't have, you know, didn't have these disadvantages and did all those things that you like about Microsoft Excel. Um, how much do you think that would save your company money? Okay. How much money would you save on a day on a, on a monthly basis? Notice I didn't ask how much you pay for it. You don't want them thinking about that. You think you want to, how much money would you save? Oh, wow. So you're saying you'd save, you know, and they, they would go, well, I don't know how to calculate that. Well, maybe you'd say a sort of like, well, how many hours do you think it would save? well, I have this person inputting this and maybe it's like 10 hours a month. Okay, so how much How much is that person? How much are you paying them for that 10 hours a month? Okay, so wow. So you're telling me you'd save like, you know, what is it, $1,000 a month or $500 a month? You see $500 a month? That's cool. So would you be willing for to pay for a product? Would you be willing to pay for, you know, $200 a month for the product? And you're going to save $500 a month? Yeah, definitely. And so by going through that process, you know, that's the other, and the other mistake I see founders fall into is they don't charge enough. They're not asking for enough. They don't go in and they ask the right questions to really, you know, figure out how much they're going to be saving that client and then working backwards from that to find the price point. Um, cool. Yeah. <clears throat> cool. So let's say uh, Eddie and I have a great idea. We've done our validation we got an email list. People are listening to our podcast. They're throwing their emails at us every day. <laughs> got a lot of buzz. Hmm? Uh, what's the next step? Do do we like quit our jobs and go move into Starter Studio <laughs> and try and get like an accelerator going? Do we take out like a huge loan and live off of that? Like, how does that process work typically? Or like, what's the smart way to do it? Um, well, there's lots of ways to do it. You know, keep on working on your spare time. Um, people have lots of spare time when they really take the time to look at what they're prioritizing, right? You've got nights, you've got weekends. There's always time that you can find if you really care enough about launching something. So, and there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, you know, I find that a lot of people think that in order to have a startup, they have to, um, it's one way or the other. They're going to have to quit their job. Right, which is kind of a false premise, um, especially depending on who you work for. Um, I really encourage people to look for halfway points. What might that look like? That might look like going to your boss, you know, or going to even the founder of the company 
and going, you know, hey, I've got this, you know, mailing list. I've got this dream that I want to create this, you know, company and I really want to give it more time. But obviously, you know, I'm not yet at the point where I can jump ship and do this. And I don't want to leave you guys in the dust either. So is there any way you can see me getting to the point where I can work maybe three days a week for you guys or even two days a week for you guys and then spend the other time working on my startup? Um, that way I can spend more time working on it because I've already consumed all of my weekend and, you know, evening hours or, you know, I have my family, so I can't afford to, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to steal their time. Um, yeah, finding that in between and um, going to your boss on that, it, it's, I think if you phrase it right, your company's going to be more receptive than that, especially if you get to this point where it's just like, hey, I'm seeing some traction in this and, you know, I... I don't know what to do because I really want to, I see that this is, this is my dream and nothing's going to stop me from doing this. And notice, notice what I said there is like, I don't know what to do as developers. Oh my God. I have a hard time saying, I don't know anything. Right. Someone asked me a question. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare is having to say, I don't know. I don't want to look stupid. Um, so, um, but it can be hugely vulnerable and really help if you go to your boss and you say like, this is going really well. And you know, I, yeah, I, I really want to work full time on this Sunday, but I'm not yet at that point. Um, but yet, you know, I want to spend more time on it and I'm ready to spend more time on it. Is there any way that, um, is there anything we could do? I don't know what to do. Is there any way I could work less here and more on that and see how it goes? So there's, there's halfway points. And then of course there's ways to, um, Turn to friends and family if you do want to quit your gig. Um, for me, that was going to my dad. You know, I was lucky enough to, when I was doing this, I didn't have a huge, I didn't have a big family at this point. You know, I go to my dad and then like, at that point I had traction, right? I go to him and I'd say, hey, you know, this, this product is doing pretty well. I'd really love to, you know, work on this full time for a few months and see how far I can get, you know, maybe like five or six months, see if it's, something I can turn into something. Do you think you'd be willing to support me for five or six months on this? And, you know, I give big props to my dad. He was always, he, he would always say, yeah, go ahead. You know, it sounds good. He would never say anything. And I, I went back to him years later and I was like, dude, you didn't even ask for like equity. You didn't ask for like a time for me to time box it. You didn't ask for your money back. Like, how did you how did you like, what was, you were so easy to, to, you know, to do that. And why'd you do that? And he said, I, he, it was interesting. He said, I knew it'd be the best education money couldn't buy. <laughs> He's like, I good. knew I like even if you failed, that it would be like a character building experience. <laughs> and like, you learn tons of stuff. Um, which is so true. And like, if, if I wouldn't have done that and had that vulnerability to, to ask him for that and, and have the willingness to receive that support, um, I wouldn't have had the success that I did. Um, cause certainly I, you know, I failed a bunch, um, and I had some hard times. So the first thing you do is, you know, you go to friends and family that could be, you know, your uncle who did well, it could be, it could be your spouse, right? It could be going to your spouse who maybe also has a gig and just say, you know, hey, would you be willing to support me so I can really follow this dream? And, you know, I'm going to time box it and basically say, you know, I want, I want six months, you know, of uh, not this. You got to time box it, right? You got I want six months of no pressure to make any money at all. 
right? Six months of no pressure on myself. I'm going to try as hard as I can, but I, I want to just be able to have, you know, no pressure to have any money at all. And then after that six months, if I'm not making enough, I'll come back to you and we'll evaluate at that point. But until that point, like I, I need a free pass to just experiment with this and try this to know that I did. And then we'll see how it goes from there. Um, so I, I think that I think that's doable. Um, I think anybody can save up, you know, um, money to be able to do that or maybe tap into savings or ask friends and family to give them a loan. Right. Um, and to support them in it. That's the other advice I give people is when you go to ask to get that ask for friends and family, um, don't make it more complex than it needs to be. I've seen people overthink this and you may have a family member that wants to support you and doesn't care even about getting paid back. Right. Maybe. So, so don't immediately say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write up a loan and blah, blah, blah. Like, don't, don't even go there. Just say, you know, I want to follow my dream and I want to support myself. So I'm looking at friends and family, obviously just, just for some financial support to, to help that, to help me with this. Is this something that you could help with? Um, you know, and you can tell me, you know, I'm going to time box at six months, see how far I can get there and then see what they, how they respond. They might say, yeah, I'm willing to pitch in. Then you go, how much? Right. And you go, you know, is this something you, you want to make sure I, you know, I, I pay you back. Is this a loan? And they might go like, no, no, I just, I like, you know, I get happiness from supporting you. Some people out there love contributing. Right. And so, you know, your gratitude's going to be enough. Like, thank you so much for letting me support in my dream. And, you know, maybe it fails. And then you go, you know, I did that. I learned a lot and I really, you know, I'll never forget that you supported me and that can, that and contributed. It meant a lot. Um, and you know, maybe they're, maybe they do like, yeah, I'd like to get paid back someday. And then you see, you write up some loan terms and maybe they bring up, yeah, I'd love equity in your company. If they bring it up, then you can do it, but you don't need to do that unless they bring it up. Don't overthink it. <laughs> don't go straight to like, it needs to have terms and equity because you might have somebody in your life that just wants to support you, um, without making it over complex. Cool. So, uh, sounds like you know, you may have to risk a little bit, but maybe it's doesn't have to be as scary as like go pull out a tens of thousands of dollars from the bank and kind of go nuts thing. Um, yeah. And if you think if you think your startup idea requires um, a big lump sum of money, you're probably not being creative enough. Um, there's always ways to, like I said, drill it down to an MVP and validate your business idea and like see how far you can get in three months or six months. Um, and of course, like, no, if you give yourself six months, you need to be able to launch something in three, <laughs> like no longer than three, because really you're going to need that second, third month, that, that second three months to advertise, sell it and pivot where you need to, to drive traffic. Right. Cause you're not going to know what your customer wants until they have it in their hands. Okay. Customers don't don't know. You know about if you're doing consulting work, you know this. You've learned this the hard way. No matter how much a customer tells you what they want, the moment that you actually give it to them to play with is the same moment they go, "Oh, damn! It'd be great if it had this, and if it'd be great if it worked like this." And that's when they figure out what they really want. And then you know, we can't launch yet. Let's build these other features. 
Yeah, I think that's universal to development, yeah. just in in general. Like, <clears throat> oh man, I finally built this thing. Here, do you like it? Yeah, but can you change this? Yeah, yeah, because you just you, you, it's just the way it works. You're not going. There's things that you're not going to realize until you have it in front of you and you're actually interacting with it. So another thing I wanted to ask uh, real quick was um, about bringing on other people to your startup idea. So I'm assuming you know, obviously, you're not making any money, so you're kind of working for free. Like, if you need something done, should you be cautious about roping in a friend or another developer? Or should you kind of, like, spool up as many people as you can? Or uh, is that kind of a pitfall? How do you feel about bringing in other people? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think it's amazing that, that, that those first couple months to a year to two years where you're just spitballing, there's ways to... Um, have fun and build stuff with your friends in a way that it's like, Hey guys, we're just going to, you know, we're going to put this together and see if it amounts to anything. And maybe someday we'll get to work on it full time. Um, there's something really cool and exciting about being in that beginning stage where you don't yet know if it's going to be anything. And there's ways to do it fairly. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's this thing called the dynamic equity split from a book called Slicing Pie by, I forget the name. The book's called Slicing we'll get the Pie. Link. Yeah, I get the <laughs> link. Um, and it provides a explicit, a really detailed way to keep track of the hours that all that everybody puts into it before the company's making any money and um and to figure out how much people owe of each part of the company um it's a really fair way to do it when no one's making money off of it because you can't afford to pay anybody and people are putting hours so everybody tracks their hours and their equity gets adjusted based on the number of hours they put into it um it's a really fair way to do it when you and your friends are just spitballing on something cool so uh, we're, we're running a little bit long, but uh, can you tell us uh, where people can find you out on the internet and kind of where they can get to View Mastery? Yeah, obviously View Mastery is at viewmastery.com. That's V-U-E mastery.com. And um, what else? And then they can follow me on Twitter. I tweet about stuff that I do as well as I've got a couple good blog posts up on gregpollock.com, although I'm not updating that much easily lately. I've got more up-to-date posts on my Medium. Cool. And then you're at Greg Pollock on Twitter, correct? That is correct. Awesome. So uh, at the end of every show, we do a little segment called Dern Minute, uh, where we just talk about video games or comic books or regular books or whatever you're into. So, uh, Greg, you're the guest. Uh, what are you into lately? Um... Honestly, what I geek out about a lot is um, psychology. And so I'll, I'll tell you what I'm even geeking about today. So today I worked with my friend Tease to build an exercise in a workshop around the inner critic. So we all have these voices inside ourselves that say, you're not good enough, you're stupid, you're, you know, no one likes you, you know, this always happens to you. Um, you know, we all have this inner critic and it's just, it's just such a common thing. It's what makes us all human. And what's interesting is that we all have it and it's a part of us that is actually, when you dive deep enough, it's actually trying to protect us. So if you can connect to the way it makes you feel, because it's trying to, you know, you, you feel a way when it speaks up, you know, it could be, you feel sad or um, frustrated, or hurt, um, or lonely. 
And if you can get in touch with a feeling, um, feelings are just our body's ways of communicating our values. And so if you dive in deeper, you go, okay, what value is this part of me trying to create? And so then with that voice that I often hear that says, you're stupid, like, you know, you did this, you know, you're so stupid that you did this. Um, that's because there's a part of me that values competence. I value, you know, competence and, um, and understanding. And if I talk to that part of me, it's going to sound a little funny. I talk to that part of me and I go, (laughs) when that voice comes up and says, you're stupid. And I go, Oh, okay. I know that part of, Oh, I know you're just trying to protect me. I know that you're just trying to keep me safe. And I know that, you know, you just want me to appear competent and you want me to be competent and you're just trying to protect me. And I know that you're there and I know you're just trying to protect me and it's okay. And I hear you. I hear you. How closely does this tie into something like anxiety or anxiety disorder? Oh, very much so. Right, because these are these uh, these are the voices that we hear in our heads. We all have these voices, and it's our resistance to these feelings. It's our resistance to them, and our rejection of these feelings that actually cause them to get worse and get them to be stuck. So, as you can kind of hear with my voice, like starting to um, thank them right? To thank these parts of us that we usually don't like. When I hear that part of me going, oh, you're, you know, you're stupid. I go, oh God, I hate that part of me that is, that thinks I'm stupid. And so there's another kind of mental trick that you can play with yourself. If you can get in touch with these voices, you can add the words and I love it to the end. So I'll prompt people to say something like a part of me thinks I'm stupid and I love it. And I love it. And you just sort of throw that around in your head. What does that sound like for you guys? Is there something that you hear? What is your inner critic usually saying? Uh, probably that I'm working too hard and not spending enough time with my family and that sort of thing. Okay. So, add, so say that again and add the words, I love it at the end. I'm working too hard and not spending enough time with my family and I love it. <laughs> that sounds weird. Okay. Yeah, it sounds weird. Yeah. But did you feel anything when you said that? Did anything change? Uh, anything shift? It definitely feels strange. Yeah. Uh, can't really place my finger on it. Right. So, you know, and I could explore that with you. So, like, why might you love feeling like you're working too hard? What story are you telling yourself? That I work really hard? Right. And there's a payoff. There's a payoff for feeling bad about working hard. There's a payoff for everything. It's a strategy. Something tells me you want to feel like you're a good father and a good partner, right? So you're telling yourself a story that a good partner would feel guilty, right? And I'm very familiar with this, right? Like I'll often put pressure on myself to be, you know, I'm not a good enough father. I'm not a good father. And it, it's like, it's like the story that I tell myself that, you know, a good father would feel bad about not spending time with his kids. So if I feel bad, that means I'm a good father, right? Do you see the contradiction? Uh, kind of like a loop, right? Yeah. And so, 
but there's this weird contradiction. Like if I didn't feel bad about, you know, if I didn't feel bad about that, if I, if I wasn't hard on myself about making sure I'm a good father, would I be, would I be a crap father? Like, Oh shit. No, no, I'd actually be, no, that's not true. And so this is kind of a, this becomes kind of a worthless emotion of making myself feel a certain way or saying, you know, I'm stupid or saying I'm not good enough. I'm actually, by doing that, I think I'm trying to make myself feel better, but it doesn't work. Because in my mind, I'm going, well, a good father would feel bad. A good father would feel guilty. And so the payoff is I get to be right that I'm a good father, but it's a false premise. Our brain loves to be right. And so we create these weird loops, all right, that we get to be right. And so when, when I do something, I, you know, when I do something uh, that makes me look incompetent, when I, um, you know, make a bad deploy, or deploy some bad code, this voice in my head goes, oh, yeah, I'm so stupid. Yeah, because part of me, of course, fears that I am stupid. Part of me fears that I am stupid. And now I go, yeah, I am stupid. And that part of me gets to be right. And the brain loves to be right. And so it's this weird, it's a feedback loop from hell because now my brain's like, yeah, yeah, this always happens to me. Yeah, I know. It always happens to me. Brain gets to be right. And that produces, that's, that goes back to this idea of significant suffering that I think my experience, you don't, you don't know what I've been going through. You don't know my suffering. You don't know how hard it is to be me, right? It's that part that, it's that part that we got when we were really young that whispers, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's always been something wrong with me. And that's the part that shows up that goes, yeah, this always happens to me. Yeah, I'm so stupid. Yeah, I'm unlovable. Gosh, I'm so dumb that I did this. I'm just going to look stupid if I do this project. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. We all have this part. And we think it makes us unique but it just makes us human. It's a common experience that we all have. And that's why when you say, and I love it, it's like, oh, oh, and I love it. The reason why that feels good when you say, I love it to that part of you that's been being mean to yourself is because part of you has been loving it. Part of you has adopted it as this identity that you that there is something wrong with you. And so by loving it, not only are you accepting it, that it's you know, a part of you and this is something you do, but you also might be starting to give it some self-compassion, huh. which is a goal that we're all trying to, we spend our whole lives trying to be more self-compassionate towards ourselves. And I'll stop there because <laughs> you guys are great listeners. I'm just going to keep on going about this stuff. As you can see, I sufficiently nerded out. So here's your nerd five minutes. It, it's never one minute, <laughs> yeah, so don't yeah. feel bad about that. You've definitely nailed that aspect of it. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like I went through the looking gra- uh, through the looking glass on that one. Uh, kind of very very introspective bit right there. Uh, I was going to bring up. I uh, saw this uh, this web game um, today on. Uh, Slack and it's in case like the letter N C A S E dot me slash anxiety. And it's a, uh, a web-based game about dealing with anxiety and kind of all of those things that you tell yourself and kind of those, uh, 
inconsistencies and like false truths that you may pass along that kind of like create that feedback loop in your own mind. Mm. So really uh, interesting that you brought that up today. And I was kind of playing that game earlier. I'll have to um, check that out. Yeah, definitely uh, check that out and let me know what you think. And uh, I can shoot you a link or something if you want to, if you want to play it. But um, cool. In any case, uh, Eddie, <laughs> what, <laughs> I don't know what, what are you into? Yeah, I know, right? It's, it's tough to follow that up. <laughs> um, I watched a couple of episodes of the Dark Crystal show. That's that's about it. Okay. Yeah. Greg, are you a fan? Uh, I have not started watching Dark Crystal yet. Have you seen the original? Oh, yeah, of course. <clears throat> are you a fan of the original? Yeah, definitely. Eddie, does it hold up? Or? Uh, I saw yeah, one episode. I, I think so, so. yeah. It's, it's, uh, um, there isn't a ton of emotion in the puppets and that's a little off putting. Mm. Uh, I just, but Weird. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a thing anyway. But, um, the, uh, Skeksis, the, the bird looking guys, they're really cool to look at. Gross. Yeah. They're, they're super gross. gross. Yeah. Yeah. The pus and stuff. Yeah. One's got like a boil on its yeah, face or something yeah. gross. And there's like slime every time that one's in the shot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's pretty over the top, but, uh. Yeah, I read that the uh, the actors are separate from like the people that are animating the puppets. So like the people doing the blocking and stuff are different from those doing the voices. Oh, think, so that's like when they did the Ninja Turtle movie. I think the people that did the voices or the animators and the face. Uh, there's a separation there. Anyway, okay, that's just what what it brings to mind. Yeah, that might be why it comes across as a little stiff at, at points. Yeah. Cool. So a uh, super awkward note to end the show on. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, The Dark Crystal, uh, I guess check it out on Netflix. <laughs> nice. I just finished the third season of 13 Reasons Why. I love oh, show. yeah, I haven't watched that at all. So uh, oh is that God. a good series to jump into? Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I, I well, you know, I like... Um, shows that have the full range of emotion, which is another way of saying it's very sad. Um, but I love crying. It's the best. Um, <laughs> I love shows that, yeah, these days when I cry, it feels like release and it's wonderful. So I try to watch stuff that, uh, that triggers that. Interesting. So that's, uh, I think that's about, uh, a girl that commits suicide in high school and then it's kind of yeah. this drama based off of that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, I associate so much with the main character. The main character of that show has like very high, um, like need for fairness and like taking care of people and very high integrity. And so, and, and also he carries around like the weight of the world on his shoulders. So I very much sympathize with the guy. Um, and also, you know, he, he, um, like, uh, puts women kind of up on a pedestal and like, I always have always, always romanticizes relationships with women. And, um, I fall into all these traps, you know, high morals, high integrity, and then also always, you know, romanticized women. And so, uh, I very, yeah, I like it because I, I'm basically the main character. <laughs> cool. So uh, I forget what they call that. And, uh, what is that? Uh, something fulfillment. I don't know. It's late, so. Codependence. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, I don't know. But uh, I'll have to check that one out. I, I saw it when it came out with season one and was like, oh, that, that seems kind of interesting, but then never watched it. So uh, if, if you said it's pretty good, then uh, I'll definitely give it a shot. Yeah, and definitely anybody who has children above the age of, let's say, 
14 should be watching it with them. Um, it's a show that basically it comes with all sorts of stuff, like how to have the conversations about it with your kids, but it covers like everything you should ever talk to your kids about and introduces it in a way that makes it accessible for the family. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. I'll, I'll definitely check it out then. Cool. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter is uh, 13. Oh, yeah. I always got to do a little math. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Eddie? No, I got it. <laughs> uh, nine and two, so I'm not nine watching two. it yet. I've got a little young. 13 and 11. <laughs> okay. Cool. So do you uh, do you watch it with your daughter? No. No, they need to be a little older. My son, they both, I probably watch, I'll watch it together with them. They both need to be a little older. Maybe when my daughter turns 13 or 14. Okay. Right. We'll see. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show, Greg. It's been a blast having you on. Yeah. Yeah. Great talking with you guys. Awesome. So uh, hopefully we can have you back uh, someday. Maybe talk to us about uh, View Mastery some more and and, uh, where that is going. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over to our site at techjr.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, click subscribe and sign up to get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other goodies. Please follow us on Twitter at TechJR Podcast. You can also follow me at Lee Wark Jr. and Eddie at ED0TER0. Join us next week where we talk with Howard Salter, who is Eddie's old bootcamp teacher. Howard has a, a very interesting story where he started in technology and then kind of put that on pause to go join the army and uh you know fight for our uh, our freedom overseas and then came back and got back into technology and then you know became a boot camp teacher eventually so really interesting story and uh i hope you join us next week on wednesday to hear that all right that's all for me take care <laughs>